Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to take your Bible in hand now and open with me to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And we're coming towards the end of our study, verse by verse, through this wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul. And we come today to a very familiar passage of Scripture, and that the whole armor of God. And when I teach the book of Ephesians, and I've had the privilege of doing that several times in my life, uh, I generally divide the book between the first half and the second half. So two divisions, the first three chapters being doctrinal, primarily. Those chapters tell us who we are in Jesus. They take us to great spiritual and theological heights. And then the last three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, are application of that doctrine. Paul says, here's who you are, now here's how you should live. But truthfully, taking into consideration our text today, we could rightly divide the book into three sections. And at least one commentator has done that, where she divides it into our wealth, our walk, and our warfare. You remember in our early days of studying Ephesians, the first couple of chapters, I said that Ephesians is sometimes known as the treasure house of the New Testament. Because Paul tells us there all of the blessings that are available to us by virtue of our mystical union with the Lord Jesus. We are in Christ, he is ours, and we are his. And he says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then for the last several weeks, beginning in chapter four, we've looked at the Christian walk. And we said that our walk is our habitual pattern of life. How we live over the long haul, our daily habit of life. And then this section, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, is the Christian's warfare. We are in a fight, spiritually speaking, every day. And so let's uh, read beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word today. Finally, he says. He's coming to the end of the letter. Now, sometimes when Paul says finally, he's just kidding. And he writes two or three more chapters. But in this particular case, he means it. And so he says, finally, that is in, of most importance, the last thing I want you to remember is be strong. Now, we tell people to be strong who are about to go through personal tragedy or crisis. Maybe someone's about to go um, through a surgery and we'll pray with them and say, be strong. But when Paul says be strong here to Christians, 
it means more than keep your chin up. Because he adds to it a very important prepositional phrase. Look at it. He says, be strong in the Lord. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Well, John MacArthur says the cardinal reality presented in the book of Ephesians is that we as Christians are in Christ. We are one with him. His strength is our strength. His power is our power. So he's putting at odds two ways of living. One way of living is where we live this life in our own power and in our own strength. And the other way of living is when we live and allow the Lord to live his life through us. And so it begs the question, if we are to have the strength of Christ living within us, how strong is Christ? Well, Christ being the second person of the Trinity is co-equal with God, he is God, and therefore he has all the attributes of God. And so we describe the power of God as omnipotence, right? He is all powerful, so he has all strength. That's why Paul can honestly write in Philippians 4.13 that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. And so as we look at the Christian's warfare this morning, I wanna look at it from four perspectives. But before we do, I wanna answer one more question. Why do we need strength? Seems like living where we do, there's a church on every corner, we're not persecuted for our faith. Many Christians seem to have their spiritual life on cruise control. Do we really need the Lord's strength? We do if we're to be obedient to Him because the truth is we are in the middle of a war. We are at war every day. The New Testament is full of martial or military imagery. In fact, when the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, just listen to what he says. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong. It's the same message he gives to the Ephesian church. Be strong in the grace of the Christ Jesus. The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So Paul says, Timothy, you're a soldier. Paul viewed himself as a soldier. In fact, one of my favorite passages of scripture, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Paul describes his own ministry with two words. He says, think of us, first of all, as a slave of Jesus Christ, that particular Greek word for slave was one who was chained to an oar in the belly of a ship. And I don't think any of us have to have a degree in military history to know that a person who was chained to an oar in the belly of the ship was not the commander, right? When that person died, they threw him overboard and put someone else in his place. And he says, another word is a steward of the mysteries of God. And so Paul understood that he was a soldier under the command of his master and commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he told Timothy that you are in obligation to the one who enlisted you. So that's our first point. Who is our commander? If we are at war, and the Bible says we're at war, and incidentally, our forefathers in the faith here in this country had no problem believing we were at war. In fact, you go back and look at our Baptist hymnal, songs like Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. The image there is of warfare. It was not neutrality. It was not 
apathy. It was not pacifism. Now we have to be very careful at this point because some Christians have read this to believe that we are to be only offensive against the tangible. That is, we are to go on the attack against those philosophies and institutions in the world that are in opposition to us. And so if a government is in opposition to it, we're to take up arms against the government. Or if some organization is leading to immorality or doing something that the Bible disapproves of, then we are to be militant actively against it. That's not all what Paul is saying. Note very clearly that he says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? And so let me be crystal clear, Christian, our fight is not with the homosexual community. Our fight is not with any political party or entity. Our fight is in the spiritual realm and it's not with flesh and blood. And so this war is not to be fought with weapons. Our war is to be fought on our knees through prayer. And so now, if that's the case, then we need to take some orders and we need to know who we take orders from. That, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself. He is our master. He is our commander. In fact, that is the terminology that his disciples most often used of him, either rabbi, teacher, or master. They understood that they were enlisted to him and had obligations to him. In fact, some of them were even ready to fight, weren't they? You remember when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled that little machaira, that little eight inch sword from his waistband or from his sleeve and took the ear off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And I could assure you he wasn't aiming for the ear. What did Jesus say to him? Peter, put your sword up. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword. Now Jesus was confident had he come to incite an earthly rebellion, his people would have fought to the death. That's not what he came to do. He came to bring about peace through his death, burial, and resurrection. So we take our orders from the Prince of Peace. Well, what then are our orders? Well, there are at least three that I find here in this section. Put on, stand firm, and pray. Look at verse 11. He says, put on the full armor. Now, in the Greek phrasing there, the implication is put it on and keep it on. That is, this is a lifetime war. One that will not be won until you die or the Lord comes back. Now, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Because anytime we go to war, initially there's usually a lot of enthusiasm and patriotism and zeal. But as time goes on and the war rages year after year, that zeal tends to diminish, right? That enthusiasm for the fight tends to wane. So we need to know up front. And so he tells us this is not a war that's going to be short. It's going to be a war till the day that you die. So he says, put on your armor, take it up, keep it on. Then he says, so that you may stand firm. In fact, three times in four verses, he uses that phrase, stand firm. That really is our primary order. That is, do not give ground. Now, there's been a lot of controversy in recent months concerning our national anthem. But my favorite line of our national anthem that Francis Scott Key wrote, says by dawn's early light, the flag was still there, right? 
The story is he was looking on a fort that was under assault by the British forces and no one knew if they had survived the night until the dawn broke the next morning and the American flag was still flying. That is his point. We're in a battle. Stand firm. Don't give up your position. In fact, the scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then one more command he gives is found in verse 18, and that is to pray. He says, with all prayer and petition. Now, oftentimes when you've seen this section of scripture taught, verse 18 is separated out from this section, but it should not be because they blend together seamlessly. As we take upon the armor, we need to pray because prayer is the way we stay in open communication with our commander, right? I've never been in the military, but in talking with people who have and reading a lot of military books, the ability to communicate with those on the front lines is essential, right? To coordinate troop movements. And if you're cut off from your communication base, you are in real trouble. And so prayer is the way we stay in communication with our commander. So we know our commander is the Lord and he's given us our clear orders to stand firm and pray and take up the armor. Now any good soldier though, if he's going to the field of battle, needs to understand who his enemy is. And so Paul tells us who our enemy is. He says in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We've covered that, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, there are those who would love for you to believe that Satan and demons and spiritual warfare are a matter of mythology. It's made up. It's what we tell children at night to frighten them. I'm here to tell you based on the word of God, Satan is real. He's a real entity and he's alive. In fact, the Bible says he is the God of this world that is behind all of the institutions and the philosophies and the governments of this world that are so anti-Christ is Satan. And he has millions and millions of demonic forces. But there's a great misunderstanding about Satan in the world today, even in the church. And that understanding is this, that, that somehow God is a force of good and Satan is a force of evil and they're in this cosmic battle, which they are, and we all kind of have to wait and see how it's all going to turn out, right? That, that's kind of an Eastern mysticism, the yin and the yang, the, the, the good and the bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that Satan, by God's authority, has been granted a dispensation of freedom where he is running the show, so to speak, here. But that is very limited. And there will come a day when that time is up and Satan and his demons will be cast into the eternal lake of fire which has been prepared for them. And that's gonna happen just as God says it's gonna happen. But for the time being, we face a real and a powerful foe. And so what should we do? Run for cover? Hide? No, we need to understand his tactics. The Bible says that he is cunning. He is clever. In fact, he says we must stand against his wiles, that is his, his trickery. Listen to what Peter says about Satan and his tactics in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil 
prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, some have read that to say, well, obviously, you know, people who are on drugs and people who are criminals, people who are involved in heinous forms of sin, Satan is about to pounce on them. Satan already has those people, right? Peter is talking about Christians being on the alert. As Paul says back in Ephesians 4, walking circumspectly with our head on a swivel, knowing there's danger all around us. Satan would like nothing better than to destroy the life and witness of a Christian and of a Christian home and of a Christian church. And that's why we have to constantly be on the guard because he is subtle. He is crafty. How does he work? He seeks to cause us to doubt what God says is true, right? Isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve? He's in the garden and he says, has God really said, if you take of this fruit, you'll die? He tried to tempt Jesus and tell him that God was holding out on him, that if he would bow down and worship him, all of this could be his. And Jesus rebuked him with the word, didn't he? With the truth and the way that we parry the blows of Satan, as we'll see in just a moment, is the word of God. He is our enemy. He tries to get us to doubt God's goodness and he tries to per- pervert the doctrines of the church through heresy and he tries to lead Christians and Christian homes and churches into disunity. Be on the guard, he says. That lion who's roaming about tends to pounce upon those who have an area of vulnerability. It's not the one in good health. It's not the one who's staying close to the herd. It's the one who strays away. That's why it's so important that you're part of a local fellowship, that you have that mutual accountability, that you're having personal times of Bible study and prayer time and feeding upon the word so that you may stay healthy and strong physically so that you don't open up, and spiritually, so that you don't open up an area of spiritual vulnerability to your enemy, the devil. So we've seen our commander is the Lord Jesus. We've seen our orders, take up, stand firm and pray. We've seen our enemy is Satan. Fourthly, and really the essence of this passage is our armor. Thank the Lord, he has not left us empty handed, He has not left us to our own devices to fight this battle. He has given us what he calls the whole armor of God. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, that word therefore is so important to Paul. It's a transitional word, right? He's saying in light of what I've just said, in light of the fact that you have this crafty real enemy who's out to destroy you, therefore take up the whole armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Dear ones, may I say the most obvious thing in the world? This is an evil day. Every day since the Lord Jesus went back to heaven has been an evil day. But this is a particularly an evil day. The day when the church is under attack. Because this is an evil day, we must take up the armor and have done everything to stand firm. Standing firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, Paul was most likely chained hand and foot, 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier as he was pinning this letter. And so he had plenty of time to observe his clothing. 
the armor his wore. And the first thing that a Roman soldier put on in the morning was his tunic. It was just a square piece of cloth with a neck hole cut out and armholes. And he put that on. And over that he would place his garment. But that robe was kind of loose fitting. And so when it was time to run or it was time to fight, he would cinch it up with a belt and pull it tight lest he stumble in his own robes. Not just soldiers that did that. Peter, when he was fishing, would cinch up. And and so he tells us to cinch up, get ready. And so the idea is be ready and mobile for action. And so he says we do that as we put on truth. Well, what is truth? Isn't that the great question of Pilate to Jesus? What is truth? Well, Jesus answered the question in John chapter 14, didn't he? When he said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Jesus is truth. So as we dwell in Jesus, as we abide in him, as we take in his word, that truth becomes the conviction of our heart. And if someone has their loins girded up, they have a conviction, right? They're ready for action. They understand they're in a fight. And so that's the beginning. And then from there, he says, uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, you know that uh, the upper body houses those vital organs like the heart, the lungs, and the liver, without which we cannot live. And so the Roman soldier valued his breastplate. It was made out of metal, sometimes animal hooves and sometimes uh, other things that he could put together that would help to stop the penetration of a spear's point or a sword's edge because he wanted to protect those vital organs. And so Paul says, put on righteousness. Now, perhaps he's talking about there in the imputed righteousness of Christ, but he's writing to Christians. So it means at least that. You know that that great exchange happens at the cross where we who have no righteousness receive the imputed righteousness of Christ as he takes on our sinfulness. But I think it also has implications of practical righteousness. He's talking about live holy lives, grow in practical righteousness because here's where the assurance of faith comes. The assurance of faith does not come by having your name on a roll at a church or by the memory of walking down an aisle, or even being baptized in a pool. The assurance of faith comes through faithfulness, comes through obedience, comes through growth in righteousness. And so Paul says, put on this breastplate of righteousness and the assurance of faith. Verse 15, he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, I've never been a soldier, but uh, we have many men in our church who have been. And when I talk to those, especially those who fought in Southeast Asia, they tell me that their number one priority was to protect their feet. And it was drilled into them here during basic training and then by their commanding officers overseas to protect their feet, keep them dry. And it's always been that case among soldiers because if you don't have a good base, you can't stand to fight. And so their shoes were incredibly important to them. The Roman soldier would wear these sandals and they would have nails driven through the top. Sometimes they would embed glass or or whatever that they could find so that in the moment of battle, when they were standing firm on a slippery slope, they could dig in their heels and not give an inch. 
And dear friends, we are on a slippery slope in this country today. And we are sliding quickly and it's time for the people of God to dig in, to stand firm with our feet that are shod with the gospel of peace. Now what is the gospel of peace? First of all, it is the assurance that you have peace with God. We don't have peace with this world. We do not have peace with Satan and his forces, but we have peace with God. That's not always been the case. In fact, before we were saved, the scripture called us the enemies of God. And I'm here to tell you, if you find yourself an enemy of God, you will not win. But since God is for us, who can stand against us, right? Because we've been born again, our citizenship has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. We're no longer the enemy. He calls us sons and daughters of the most high. We are enlisted in the army of our master and commander, the Lord Jesus, who gives us our marching orders through his word. Our enemy is Satan, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we take that message of peace to a lost and a dying world. Verse 16, he says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. A Roman soldier had two kinds of shields. There was the little small one that he would carry on his forearm in hand-to-hand battle with swords. He could stop the blows. But the one it's speaking of here is the full size, four and a half to five foot, three foot wide interlocking shields that you've seen on the old movies. And they would take these shields and interlock them sort of like a, an armadillo's shell. That's a good Texas reference, isn't it? And, and they would get under that and they could advance towards their enemy and they would shower down pitch and tar and sometimes they would dip their arrows in that tar and set them on fire and shoot them. And so they would, before the battle, soak their shields, which were made of wood but covered with leather, in water. Or, or some liquid that would extinguish those fiery darts. And so he says Satan's going to be shooting fiery darts. And you know what those fiery darts are? There are ways to make you doubt God, right? But if your faith is strong, your faith will extinguish all of the fiery darts of the evil one. And you'll make it to the other side intact, right? We call that the perseverance of the saints. I get so frustrated though when I hear people on television who've gone through a tragedy, maybe someone's been lost on the ocean for three months and they're found alive and the interviewer says, how did you make it? And they said, my faith. And that sounds nice, but it's meaningless unless that faith is attached to Jesus. We do not have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus. And so when he says, in addition, take up the shield of faith, that is faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. The head is the most vital part of the human body. It houses our brain, a place of thought. And so he says, make sure you've got that helmet on. The most important of the Roman soldier's armor. It was made out of strong metal, sometimes had leather straps that even covered the face. In the midst of battle, the enemy would go for the head. 
If he had a good helmet, it offered him protection. Well, the only thing that will protect us ultimately from Satan, our enemy, is the knowledge that we're saved, right? Because what's the worst thing that Satan can do? He may be even able to take our lives, but then, according to the book of Job, only when God allows that, and I think in very rare cases, but even if God allows Satan to take your life, if you're truly born again, you're gonna take your next breath in glory. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so if you have the helmet of salvation firmly secured, you truly are invincible in a spiritual sense. And then that final weapon, the only offensive weapon he offers us, the sword of the spirit. And this is the only one that he offers his own commentary. He explains what the sword of the spirit is. It is the word of God, right? Now we're in a fight and you're in a fight you need a weapon. And God has given us an offensive weapon. It is the word. How foolish it is to be in a fight for your spiritual life and neglect to care for and practice with your weapon. Every Sunday afternoon, our children gather in this church for what we call Bible drill. When I was that age, we called it sword drill. Based on this scripture. We recognize that we're about to send these young people into a world where they have an enemy and the only weapon available to them is the Bible. They better know how to use it. And men and women, you better know how to use it. It's why it's so vital you come to church every Sunday and be committed to your small group Bible study. But more than that, your personal time alone with the Lord, your personal Bible study. And then he says to all that, prayer and petition at all times. Look, the bad news is this. We are in a battle, and the battle's getting hotter. The good news is this. We know how the battle ends. Satan is a defeated foe. It's only a matter of time, but he is a dangerous foe. Don't let your guard down for a minute. Walk circumspectly. Be sober. Keep on your guard. Recognize we have an enemy but recognize that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I know I have not done justice in 30 minutes to one of the great passages of scripture. Hopefully, Lord, you're able to use what we've said today to encourage the hearts of believers who are here. Father, as soon as we walk out these doors, we're in a battle battle for our affection, battle for our thoughts, battle for every part of us. Help us to remember, Lord, a few things. Number one, our battle is not against people. We're to be people as made in your image, as potential trophies of your grace. So help us to be quick to share the gospel. Yeah, Lord, we know we do have an enemy. His name is Satan. He's real. The battle is carried on in the spiritual realm in heavenly places. And we engage that battle on our knees through prayer. And so, Father, we know the greatest thing we can do is stay in your word and stay in prayer. Lord, I'm so grateful for this church family that we don't have to fight this battle alone. Father, that we have encouragement and support through one another.
Lord, I pray for members of our church who are straying, whose affections are being led away by the things of the world. And Lord, they're opening themselves up to areas of vulnerability where Satan would seek to destroy their witness and their life and their family. Lord, I pray that would not happen. Draw them back, Father, we pray. Perhaps there's a person in this room today, Lord, who has never been saved. All they know is being part of the kingdom of darkness. Lord, I pray by your spirit you would open their blind eyes today. Draw them unto yourself. Save them, Father. Enlist them into your army today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.